Welcome to the Gut Podcast. I'm Mary McLean, Senior Lecturer and Consultant in Gastroenterology at Aberdeen University in Scotland, UK, and current Visiting Academic Fellow at the Frederick National Laboratory of Cancer Research in the USA. In my role as Education Editor for Gut, I'm hosting this podcast today. This month, I'm discussing the Editor's Choice Manuscript from the May issue of GUT, presented by the European Helicobacter Study Group, entitled Management of Helicobacter Pylori Infection, the Maastricht 4 Florence Consensus Report. I'm delighted to welcome Professor Peter Malfordiner here today to discuss this paper. He is first author on this report and is a world-leading figure in upper gastrointestinal disease research and management, including Helicobacter pylori infection. Welcome. Yes, hello. Well, firstly, can you tell us about the European Helicobacter Study Group? Who are the members and what is their mission? Yeah, now the Helicobacter Study Group was uh, founded back in 1987. It uh, has a very interesting history because at that time there were a few people working in the area of Campylobacter pylori, was the original name of this bacterium, which uh, was, of course, first described by the Australian Warren and Marshall in '83 in a short letter in Lancet. And some of us who studied this bacterium at the time in the context of its role in chronic arthritis and peptic ulcer disease, because these were the first interesting topics in its relationship, we found that only a very small group of people interested completely against the mainstream thinking of that time, we decided in 87, in an ad hoc meeting uh, that we created to get together as a group, and since then we continue to have annual meetings, uh, which at their peak uh, in the mid-90s had about 2,500 people attending, uh, whereas the general interest in the beginning was, as I said, low, and then it started to be as, as big as in uh, 1995, 96, and then there was a certain, I would say, uh, saturation of um, scientific clinical knowledge, and the attendees of our annual meetings now are in the order of 350 to 400. And while in the beginning the main interest was in the role of Helicobacter pylori in its clinical uh, relations. Uh, Starting early, I would say, in the 90s, many basic scientists who used this model of Helicobacter pylori infection in the stomach, a unique niche uh, for the bacterium, as it had no uh, other competitors, started to use it for basic science studies. And, of course, from there, translational activities. And uh, there was just a recent paper in 2011 that showed that the number of manuscripts per year on Helicobacter pylori in its various uh, relationships is still in the order of more than a 1,000. So the scientific interest continues to be maintained, whereas key clinical questions had been solved. Just to remember that... In 2005, the two discoverers, Warren and Marshall, received the Nobel Prize because they made a major change in the management of peptic ulcer disease through eradication of this bacterium versus the earlier only acid inhibitory therapies. 
Moving on to a more clinical uh, focus, can you briefly remind us of the societal burden of helicobacter pylori infection in terms of prevalence and potential pathological consequences of this? The, the main consequences of the infection are, number one, all infected people develop chronic inflammation of the gastric mucosa. And to our knowledge, spontaneous clearance of this infection is exceptional. In fact, the transmission of the infection is usually in childhood, and the main consequences in terms of clinical complications occur in the advanced age of the adult people, and they are, apart from gastritis and dyspeptic symptoms in a subset of patients, development of peptic ulcer disease in the stomach and duodenum, which apparently, or let's say, which seems to occur in the order of 4 to 5 percent uh, of the infected, and Finally, the most, uh, let's say, dramatic complication is gastric cancer, which, depending on uh, other cofactors that vary uh, from environmental and uh, host uh, predisposing factors, so it's, it's not helicobacter in itself and alone, but it's the key trigger, which leads to gastric cancer, is uh, occurring in up to 0.5% of the infected people. But as I said, there is a huge variation around the globe. We have a high uh, incidence rate in, in the Far East. We have a much higher incidence rate of this uh, complication of gastric cancer in Eastern Europe, or for instance, uh, in, in Portugal as a, as a southern western country, but we have less in Central and Northern Europe, and in UK, for instance, gastric cancer is much less. Well, the first section of the report focuses on the test and treat strategy. The consensus is that this is an appropriate strategy for a dyspeptic patient without alarm symptoms in an area of high prevalence. Can you expand this to further explain the benefits of this approach, the pitfalls to avoid, and the detection test to use? Yeah, this is a very important strategy that dates back, in fact, in 1996 when we first proposed to test the young patient with, with dyspeptic symptoms and no alarm symptoms uh, because only in this condition the uh, likelihood of a severe uh, disease can be excluded up to a, a very high percentage. So the reason for um, recommending a test and treat uh, strategy in the young persons is, number one, that if a person results infected and has symptoms, there is always a chance he could also have peptic ulcer disease, which would be cured by a seven-day treatment in the uncomplicated ulcer condition. Then we uh, have the second advantage that studies which looked at the long-term effect of H. pylori eradication therapy in infected versus, for instance, just a symptomatic PPI therapy on the long term, up to one year and longer, results in more benefit as to the symptoms only. And, of course, the pitfalls are the diagnostic tests, which for this purpose are preferentially the 
urea breath test as a non-invasive test or the fecal antigen test, again, as a non-invasive test, that if the background prevalence in the population is low so that you have, let's say, less than 20% infected, the uh, diagnostic uh, accuracy, which is although up to 90, 95%, does not uh, give you the confidence that in a low in a low prevalence setting, you are uh, accurate enough to decide for a, for a therapy. The number needed in treat in, in effect, which is the mainstay in our conclusion, is in the order of 1 to 12 concerning symptomatic relief if, if dyspepsia only is present, um, which, which is very different from a number needed to treat in an H. pylori positive ulcer patient where it is one out of one where you would have the, the clinical benefit. So there are these three aspects. Number one, you need to select the patients that you test non-invasively. You need to have, of course, a good test, as I mentioned, breath or fecal antigen test. And third, you have to perform this in a, a background prevalence of the infection, which is more than 20%. What about the role of helicobacter pylori infection management in the context of functional dyspepsia or gastroesophageal reflux disease? Yeah, in fact, in functional dyspepsia, we do not have any more effective drug than eradication on the long term. So if you have an infected with functional dyspepsia, that means that you have investigated the patient endoscopically and you have excluded all other possible organic causes, then it is the best way to go according to studies that we have available. This is often not recognized and some people claim, yeah, but you could also give some just symptomatic therapy. And But number two, in these patients, you also may prevent further complications with, which come at a later stage of their life. So it's more than one rational to use this. In gastroesophageal reflux disease, uh, the prevalence of H. pylori infection varies again in various countries. In our country, for instance, in Germany, and we have a large uh, experience in reflux disease, also in a huge study on more than 6,000 patients with gastroesophageal reflux disease, and the infection rate is above 20%. So... Um, the, what, what has been postulated that you have a protection from the presence of um, Helicobacter pylori regarding uh, gastroesophageal reflux disease is not true on a general level. It, it, as I said, depends on the background prevalence. And if you have an infected patient with GERD who, who is going to use a long-term PPI uh, therapy as a requirement for treating this condition, it is recommended to, or it's um, useful to eradicate Helicobacter pylori because it would accelerate um, the degree of damage to the mucosa if you keep PPI, although there is no data to show that you would have the uneventful um, progress to cancer. That needs to be made, made clear. Some people say, uh, on a, some publication reported that uh, 
if you are H. pylori positive, your GERD is easier to treat because PPI are more effective. Uh, this is not true for potent PPIs, but it is true that for less potent acid inhibitors, the presence of Helicobacter pylori would lead to a more potent acid inhibition. Clinically, it is not relevant. The conclusion is that for GERD in itself, Helicobacter pylori does not play neither a protective nor a facilitating role. When it comes to the complication of gastroesophageal reflux disease like adenocarcinoma of the distal esophagus or Barrett carcinoma, then there are associations from an epidemiological perspective that indicate less H. pylori infection in patients with Barrett's adenocarcinoma. But a direct causal relationship cannot be uh, extrapolated from this. So this is an associative, let's say, observation, but not a causal um, conclusion you can make. In, in practical terms, whenever Helicobacter pylori is detected, eradication is suggested to be useful don't withhold the therapy in patients with GERD because of the fear that had been created in the past that it could be um, uh, of disadvantage for, for patients with GERD. This is not the case. Helicobacter pylori has also been linked to extraintestinal disease. Can you tell us a little about this? It is true. There have been many, many papers um, investigating whether the chronic inflammation of the gastric mucosa has systemic effects, and um, there have been many associations reported to be positive. Just to mention uh, the, the neurodegenerative disease like Alzheimer, there are four studies where you have three positive associations between Helicobacter and Alzheimer and one negative, one from Japan negative. But if you enter in depth to these uh, papers, they are not strong enough to um, justify that one would test at the present stage the presence of Helicobacter and treat in order to give any benefit to neurodegenerative diseases. The same is true for dermatologic diseases like urticaria, uh, and other conditions. So after a very careful reading of the literature, the consensus group of Maastricht came to the conclusion that there are only three conditions where you have to test and in case of positivity, treat helicobacter, and this is number one, the idiopathic thrombocytopenic purpura, the iron deficiency anemia after you have excluded any other source of chronic bleeding in the GI tract or, let's say, malabsorption due to celiac disease and vitamin B12 deficiency, which is, of course, linked especially to the more uh, advanced condition of chronic atrophic gastritis. Interestingly, there is um, also a reduction in bioavailability of certain drugs like L-tyroxine, or levodopa used in Parkinson's disease. For these drugs, 
we have concluded in our meeting that there is a loss in efficacy, uh, but clinical studies to prove that it is mandatory to eradicate have, have not yet been published. So we just indicate this relationship of a less effective drug um, as, the, as those mentioned, but there is no concluding recommendation that can be drawn at current, but needs to be considered, of course. Let's move on to treatment strategies now. This is clearly a complex issue and there is a detailed account of this in the paper, including review of the supporting literature. For the purpose of this podcast, can you give the listeners a brief pit stop tour of this topic, maybe talk about the problems encountered, the potential solutions and a strategy of approaching helicobacter pylori treatment in our clinical practice? The major challenge for our therapies comes from the increasing resistance to some of the key players in the uh, combination therapies. And the current um, triple therapy, which is standard in Europe and in many parts of the world, either for 7 or 14 days, uh, has a dramatic fall in efficacy because of clanitromycin resistance. So we came up uh, with recommendations uh, concerning first-line options in regions of low claritromycin resistance where claritromycin, amoxicillin, and a PPI or claritromycin metronidazole and the PPI can still be kept as first-line treatment. And on the other side, areas with uh, high claritromycin resistance, first-line treatment has to be completely changed because clinitromycin can no longer be part of this first line. This is a, a very important um, consequence from surveillance studies which have shown that in certain areas the clinitromycin resistance is much more prevalent than in others and the conclusion is also that we need to surveil in, in the future uh, areas for uh, expressing in different parts of Europe and also in the world whether clavistromycin can be maintained as first-line ingredient in, in therapies. So in regions of high resistance to clavistromycin, the first-line therapy is now bismuth-containing quadruple, which contains bismuth, tetracycline, metronidazole, plus a PPI, and in regions where this is not available, sequential therapy or non-bismuth quadruple therapy has been recommended. So there is a, an awareness of uh, selective choice of first-line therapies. And of course, we recommend, in, or the, the group, the consensus group recommends to test the efficacy of treatment, and this should usually happen between four and six weeks after the ending of a therapy, and this will allow the uh, regions to be surveilled. Because if we stop to treat, uh, to top, top, uh, stop to surveil the therapy efficacy, we would lose the, the pace in, in the selection of the correct first-line therapies. And apart from a general um, knowledge that we need to have, we also need it for the individual patient because if he uh, has recurrent symptoms or recurrent 
uh, H. pylori complications, then, uh, or, or let's say, in order to prevent this, we need to know if he has successfully been treated or not. After first-line failures, which can occur uh, in re regions with high and uh, low clavitomycin resistance, we have also come up in the Maastricht guidelines with the so-called second-line recommendation, which is in regions with low claritromycin prevalence, bismuth quadruple, or PPI levofloxacin amoxicillin, and in regions with high claritromycin resistance prevalence, the second line would be PPI levofloxacin amoxicillin, as in these regions, bismuth quadruple is first line. In case of a further failure, uh, we came up with the recommendation to re-isolate the bacteria through an endoscopic examination and then culture for testing the susceptibility to other available drugs, which include then uh, also rifabutin or other, other not uh, so frequently used antibiotics. The final section of the paper focuses on the role of helicobacter pylori in the pathogenesis of gastric cancer and the strategies to avoid this and other complications. And we've already discussed this potential complication earlier in our discussion, but can eradication of helicobacter pylori have an effect on the pre-malignant pathology of gastric atrophy? Yeah, I mean, uh, the evidence that was available allowed us to formulate the conclusion that there is a potential first to prevent gastric cancer, and this prevention of gastric cancer through helicobacter pylori eradication is as better as more early you start. And you mentioned atrophic gastritis. Is it not already a point of no return? the evidence would say no, atrophic gastritis can be arrested in its progression and in very selected uh, publication it was even reported that it was reversible whereas the other component of advanced damage to the mucosal intestinal metaplasia is never reversible. So there is probably at current stage the um, concluding knowledge that we can prevent gastric cancer, but we will not be as effective in reversing situations that have already occurred in this pathway towards gastric cancer, but we can hold it. So there is an advantage of eradication in atrophic gastritis, which is an indication for therapy. Uh, maybe I have explained this in a little complicated uh uh, way, but it is in fact um, yeah as good as I could. No, that's that's great. Thank you. Um, the risk of developing gastric cancer is associated with both helicobacter pylori virulence factors and also host genetics such as single nucleotide polymorphisms and pro-inflammatory genes. Is there any evidence that testing for these factors in a population-based strategy would be efficacious? Yeah, there are no data to allow us to make such a recommendation, although it is critically important that these studies continue to be undertaken for a better understanding of how H. pylori virulence factor 
host susceptibility, as you mentioned, uh, polymorphisms of various factors involved in the inflammatory process, and finally also the environment. Um, this interplay is, is critical, but would not allow us at current stage to um, recommend of testing uh, individual virulence factors. However, I would uh, like to mention that uh, H. pylori eradication to prevent gastric cancer should be considered in, in certain conditions as if there are first-degree relatives or family members with a diagnosis of gastric cancer. And there is exactly what you mentioned, interference with host factors, which is very important. Also, uh, interestingly, uh, patients with um, chronic gastric acid inhibition for more than a year, even though there is not a strong evidence that they would progress, it is suggested that this should be treated. And um, I personally feel that one of the statements we made in this context is that H. pylori positive patients with a fear of gastric cancer, although there is no evidence uh, in terms of studies made, it, it should be considered for this patient. You take them away an important fear, and there's no way to neglect the important relationship of helicobacter with gastric cancer. So this is important uh, that people are offered the possibility to be tested and also treated in case of positivity. Is there any evidence for a population-based screening strategy to assess for infection with helicobacter pylori early in life to reduce the lifetime risk of gastric cancer and other complications? Um, difficult question that you're posing, and we discussed this a lot, and you can imagine um, that there are various views depending from which area of the world you come. In general, and we have a clear statement in this, uh, a screen and treat strategy should be explored for the moment only in communities with a significant burden of gastric cancer. So to say population-based screening is an option in areas where you have a high incidence of gastric cancer, but would make no sense in uh, areas where you have a, a, a low incidence of gastric cancer. So in the Asian Pacific area, for instance, it makes sense. And there are also studies on the way to really prove the uh, value on a uh, population-based level. It seems also that in such areas from various um, cost-benefit models, it is cost-effective to, to embark in such a strategy. Well, another emerging concept, of course, is the development of a helicobacter pylori vaccine. How feasible is this, and what's the current stage in development of this? In fact, I will report on our vaccine experience just now in, in San Diego next week. Uh, we started uh, to have a very high expectation in a vaccine that was using recombinant antigens, VAC-A, CAC-A, and NAP, which is a neutrophil-activating peptide, because we found uh, in a preliminary uh, phase one clinical trial that there are high immune responses to these uh, virulence factors. 
Uh, and so we embarked in a challenge study. We used this vaccine and then versus placebo, and then we exposed people to infection with helicobacter. We infected them. And there is a slight uh, minor uh, infection rate in the vaccinated, but but not significant in order to move on. So that I think that we are presently with the vaccine at a stage where, to me, there is a chance that a vaccine gets developed and it would be extremely helpful to prevent all these severe complications and particularly cancer in the uh, populations with a high cancer. But um, the, the mechanisms that, that we are continuously learning, which are critical to confer immunity, um, need to be implemented in the development of new vaccines. Now, um, the companies, let's say the industries, are probably not so interested they, uh, to develop a vaccine and would rather invest in therapies because there they have a, a much better return of their investments. And this is kind of sad. And I think we as clinicians who are especially living in areas uh, of the Western world where we are also capable of helping people with gastric cancer, we should feel much more committed to uh, stimulate also the um, opinion leaders uh, of these companies to embark in a vaccine development. Personally, I believe it is possible if uh, with all the strength of basic science knowledge, uh, enough input would come from from this capacity. But anyhow, this is a is a topic which is open, and uh, um, we need to motivate industries to um, to continuously embark in this. I personally, I am very much committed to to work in this area. Well, that brings us to the end of today's podcast. I'd just like to finish by thanking Professor Malfordiner for joining me today and participating in this, this discussion. Thank you very much.